How's it going, Sharice? I am very sleepy. So I'm just going to preemptively say that. <laughs> it's like a disclaimer. It's my disclaimer. Is it because you're on the last week of school and you just got... And you're uh, just, like, no, no, no. First, first week of last term. Not the last week of school. The last week of school, I don't think this recording is going to happen. Yeah. Why do you say that's that? That's unlikely. You just think you'll be out. I just think I'll I, be... Were you about to say out partying? Because that's you know me and that is not what I'm going to oh. be doing. Or if we do do a recording, I will be so delusional that like who knows what I'm going to be saying. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. My subject this week is Forever 21 Files for Bankruptcy. So Forever 21, the fast fashion retailer, sans serif, black logo, yellow bags, really, really widely known, I would say. Forever 21 said on Sunday this past weekend, September 29th, that they would be filing for bankruptcy, a chapter 11 filing. This is something that I looked up I didn't know previously. So Barney's New York also filed a Chapter 11 earlier this year. And what it is, is that a business is planning to restructure. So it's not like Mm -hmm. folding our doors, disappearing, bye-bye. It's more like we would like to restructure our company and we're going to let our creditors have decisions over how we restructure in order to make sure that like we pay back the money we owe. So Forever 21 Mm -hmm. said they're going to stop operating in 40 countries and close up to 178 stores in the States. They have 800 storefronts total, and they're closing up to 350, so almost half. But it's going to continue operating its website and still have, you know, 450 stores. Linda Chang, Forever 21's executive vice president, said to The Times, What we're hoping to do with this process is just to simplify things so we can get back to doing what we do best. And I thought this quote was kind of funny. I know, I know. That is exactly, that is exactly the question I had. Before you were going to say that, I was actually curious, like, your interest behind this. I mean, I we were going to get into it anyways, but I almost thought as though this needed to be established at the top versus towards the end. Okay. My interest behind it is not related to that quote. I mainly put in that quote because I found it so funny. Because I oh, was no, like, no, no. not more, sure. More like Forever 21 is the topic itself. Oh, okay. My interest is in malls. That's actually why I picked this. Oh, okay, okay. So the, my interest in picking this subject about Forever 21 bankruptcy is, in, is because I've been thinking about shopping malls. Like, I mean, not like seriously or anything, but... It was something that passed through my mind recently. And Forever 21 has been acting as an anchor store in a lot of... uh, They literally use this phrase in the Times. I'm just going to use it. Lower quality shopping malls across the States. Mm. Okay. And... Well, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess 
I don't know who I'm expecting to hear this. Like, there's kind of a lot of shade on fast fashion outlets in this segment. So my interest is, you know, it's interesting to me. This is a little bit of a fast forward. Can I put a pin in it or do you want to talk about malls right now? No, no. I just wanted to like have a little bit of a taste okay. of where we're going with this. Okay. So let me talk a little bit more about just like the Forever 21 um, filing. They said the reasons are the company expanded too aggressively. So they went from seven countries to 47 countries in under six years. They also said that across the states, there is less mall traffic and there are more online sales in fast fashion. So they're anticipating after restructuring that they'll make around $2.5 billion a year versus before, which was $3.3 billion approximately. Just some more about Forever 21 in case anyone's not familiar. 40% of their customers are between 25 to 40. Their competitors are traditionally H&M and Zara, but really it's more like H&M, Zara, and Fashion and Forever 21 are competing against e-commerce fashion sites like ASOS and Fashion Nova. And Mm -hmm. Mark A. Cohen, the director of retail studies at Columbia Business School, said that he actually believes fast fashion is as popular as ever and that Forever 21's bankruptcy is not due to, let's say, like the Greta generation not buying clothes, but is more due to Forever 21 just expanding too much physically in brick and mortar stores. Does that make sense? So like this, this news is not an optimistic bit of news. Like Forever 21 filing for bankruptcy does not mean people are buying less stuff. It just means that people are buying their stuff differently. So that gets me back to my interest in malls. Okay. And one of my questions was, okay, so if Forever 21's competitors are Zara and H&M, how are they doing? Okay. Very quick Google. Zara's owner, Inditex Group, actually reported an increase in net sales of 3% in 2018. And H&M, remarkably, first half of this year has an increase of 11% in their mm. net sales. But again, like what I was saying, I didn't dive a lot into their reports, but it is really about online shopping for them. And the fact that they're doing better has to do with like being more innovative in their digital presence because basically there's no room for fast fashion in malls. Yeah, everything you mentioned made me think and I was I was just like thinking to myself, is this a trend in terms of their growth like i mean that that one expert suggested that hey you know what we're actually going to continue on this path of fast fashion and it's not as bad as you think it is but i wonder when that will run out because i do think it will run out the fast fashion I, thing well actually, i don't, I don't know. know i don't know I think, See, actually the, it, it, no I, I should preface i think that there's going to be a baton passing that's going to continue this trajectory I don't think the consumers of fast fashion today in 2019 are going to be around, which, sorry, let me, I need to even go deeper into that because I I don't think the consumers of fast fashion of today and their demographic they fall in will necessarily be the same demographic that's purchasing fast fashion uh, as a majority down the line. Okay. So what I mean by that is like, 
if you're like a teenager from the Western world, I don't know if you're going to be the one that's going to continue to buy fast fashion in 10 years. But I think that the growing segment might be an emerging market. Ah, I see what you're saying. So, so that's it, what I mean by passing the baton. Right. I get it. So what you're saying is like, if right now the Forever 21 customer is a 12 to 16 year old young people in the Western world. Sure. Sure. In 10 years, that's not going to be the case. It's going to be maybe 12 to 16 year olds in emerging markets. Hypothetically. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 I mean, so really, okay. There's, there are two things I wanted to talk about. One is the fact that the Forever 21 bankruptcy is attributed to um, e-commerce, right? And so that's why we can't see this as, because at first when I read this, part of me wanted to be like, oh, people are buying less stuff, like buying less of this low quality fast fashion. But the facts of it is that that's not the case and that they've just moved to ASOS and Fashion Nova. So this is kind of, I mean, following on from last week, just more like slightly disappointing news to know that across the world, people are consuming equally as much stuff, even, you know, despite all the rhetoric around like the climate crisis. And one thing I, when I was doing research for this, apparently Fashion Nova offers over a thousand new styles every week. Yeah. It's just like crazy to me. Okay, so that's point one, the like depressing environmental thing. And then point two, I was thinking about, well, where do people hang out if they're not hanging out in shopping malls? In their phones, in their bedrooms. Do you feel like that's not a adequate replacement? What was your well, what was your experience with shopping malls? Yeah, with shopping malls, you definitely go there and hang out. I just think that right now it's it's this lack of desire for commitment, like getting up, getting to the mall, whatever, that's one way of looking at it. Whereas I think that the dopamine rush that comes with how well our mobile experiences are engineered, and I don't say that in a good or bad way, just it pulls you in. There's so much stuff you can do on your phone. Like, do I really need to be present with you at a mall for us to hang out? Like, I, I still really believe the only places that are truly protected are probably food experiences because you can't eat through your phone, but you need to go and physically actually do something together with somebody. Even though you might still be like on your phone at the dinner table, you're at least physically present. I don't know if I'm being so old school, but I feel like there should still be physical places to congregate. I'm not saying that they should be malls necessarily because like, you know, malls are emblematic of capitalism at its finest. Um, but I don't, I don't think hanging out on your phone at home is quite the same. I don't think so either. Like, it's interesting because the research shows, it's, it's not just that sales are down, it's that mall foot traffic is down. So like when I was in middle school, high school, we would just go to the mall and not buy anything ever, but we would just like, I guess, loiter at the mall. Yeah. Um, and so right now people are not doing that anymore. And I think you're right. Yep. Like, I think they are just at home in their rooms, all on social media together. But like the place of congregation is this digital place. I mean, what are the things that you like to do? And do they need a mall to do it? And like, honestly, movies, video games, music, 
I don't know if you really need that stuff. I just guess there might be studies done on this, but I just wonder about like, what is the difference between being in a physical space together versus being in a digital space together? Like, what do you get, if anything, from being in physical proximity to other people and in an actual architectural environment? If that's the difference. It's funny because there's a piece we're making that I was talking to. There was a piece we're making where I actually discussed this because it was about the future of work, right? And maybe it's a little bit more critical in a work environment because there's a common goal. Like, whereas when we're hanging out, I don't really need to achieve anything. I just want your company. But I would say that actually, maybe in a leisurely environment, physicality matters a lot less. Mm. But I think in a work environment, it matters a lot more because. There needs to be some sort of semblance of being on the same page and communication. Whereas, like, you don't really need that but when, I th- you're, when you're hanging out. But maybe you do. I, I, I know I'm saying this with, like, a lot of, like, question marks at the end. But I, I think that there is something even in small physical interactions, like making eye mm. contact or if you high-five your friend or if you hug them goodbye or just like, I don't know, you're walking past a store and a really good song comes on and you do like a kind of dance move. Do you know what I mean? Like these tiny micro physical interactions that that at least right now are not really possible on our phones. Yeah, I mean, those are all, those are all part of it, but I think that there's replacements for it that maybe just provide a different interaction experience like that like i said if we go and play video games together what is the difference there if like i'm getting what i want out of the experience that's true hanging out i don't think i just think that the expectation of the past doesn't need to hold true for the expectation of the, of the present i mean that's why culture changes right i think new and better things come along and we adopt them or we're, we're forced to adopt them and that is Kind of the more fascinating way of looking at things. In reality, the the era of the shopping mall obviously came at a time when when online shopping had yet to really take place, right? And if its critical underlying usage is not really serving people because it's no longer needed, then you just need to rethink how to reappropriate that. I think that the use case in most places in big cities, but I guess not all big cities have malls. It's just can you can you take that and turn it into housing mm. or schooling? Or schooling is a big one too. Hey, that's a good that's a good suggestion. Yeah. I don't think that's an original thought, though. I'm pretty sure I I saw that somewhere else. I'm not going to claim that. No, I mean I'm not. Tri- that's a good thing that you brought up because that's something I kind of came across too. Is that like malls really need to be those physical spaces really need to be converted into not just places where people shop, but people do things like go to the gym or like you said, attend classes or other parts of their lives besides just consuming um, things that are leisure goods. Yeah. I- I'm sure that if we ask somebody who played, it's funny because my next sub, our subject today also talks about gaming, but just understanding how the person who games feels when they play online with their team versus when they play at like a LAN party, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, okay. I'm, I'm still going to say this. It just, it doesn't mean that I'm hitting like 
detracting from digital experiences where you are with people. And those are only just going to get more heightened and in terms of functionality, become closer and closer to exactly what we have in physical reality. But I still will say that there is something about being physically present somewhere with someone that is not replicable at this point. Yeah, totally. For you and I, the big one is even though we look at each other, lag, like just having conversations, sometimes you don't really know yeah. when you can speak versus that element of speaking over. If I'm going to speak over you when we're present with one another, I'm doing it deliberately and I'm, it's almost in itself a signal. If I'm talking over you, that means like, I don't, I don't respect you or like, I, I think that I'm, I'm, my point is more important. Versus if it happens here right now, like, oh, it's just because there's lag and like, I'm not registering as quickly as I would in real life. Yeah. I mean, just also my stance comes from like the way I communicate. So I use a lot of emoting and hand gestures. And actually, I've realized that when we do this video call, I like heighten it because I I feel like I need to transmit that across like a greater distance like there's a greater barrier versus if we were sitting at the same table i could just like give you a glance and you would know that like i have something to say or like how i feel about your statement yeah yeah I mean, that's it for me really um forever 21 not saying bankruptcy is kind of weird too i think they're really restructuring and downsizing and yeah. the hit that that means for malls yeah, I don't know. I, I guess you you definitely took a big tangent there and just really went into the realm of malls. I did. I did. Well, because at first I was like, there was an element, not that this is not really a very good concluding statement, but when I first came across the news, I was a little bit surprised because... If you think back to how much impact they've had in the last two years, three years like on fashion... Not necessarily from a good bad perspective, but just how much people talk about them or see them, it's crazy for them to be in this position. Yeah. So I initially clicked on it out of surprise. And then the reason I brought it to the table is because I was like, oh, yeah, I am interested in talking about shopping malls. Anything that ever had a high barrier to entry and has lost it, which shopping malls are, because obviously it's hard to put together a shopping mall. But in yeah. terms of, how they rebuild themselves is understanding what they do best or what they're really good at and seeing if there's still a, a reasonable demand for that. Or like just well, understanding we, what they have. We didn't even go into it because I think that Hong Kong's shopping malls are a totally different thing than like the Western shopping mall. But I think Hong Kong shopping malls do some things better in terms of relevancy. Yeah. And, and, Related to what you said about modifying what they supply to people's demands and a greater variety of things that are not just clothing.
my subject this week actually falls in a similar vein of fashion and apparel. There was this article that was posted on Hypebeast called Inside the Race to Monetize Esports Apparel. What I find interesting about esports in general is that it is obviously um, it's an industry that's growing really rapidly. But from an actual clothing apparel perspective, it falls in a different sort of positioning because when I, like Sharice, for example, if I tell you, hey, can you get me a baseball jersey or a soccer jersey or a hockey jersey? You kind of have an immediate thing pop into your mind as to what it represents, right? Yes. But by virtue of esports not really having the same functional element behind the jersey, it actually has a lot more opportunity to be looser and kind of uh, go with the flow in terms of what it personally wants to represent. Right, like a- Also, I would argue that it's not just because of functionality, but about regulation. Because when you say basketball, I think NBA. And when you say baseball, I think MLB. And those are both organizing bodies that regulate what uniforms look like. In a way, yes. But I think that across the board, basketball jerseys look the same, whether you're in Europe, Brazil, North America, Asia, etc. So I think there's like I'm an, just saying that it's part function, but also part because of what organizing bodies have said this is what they should look like. Yes. And so esports is free from both of those constrictions, free from a specific mm, actually, functionality. I think I, think I would and actually also push from regulating bodies. Back on that. Because like a few years ago, yeah, so obviously football kits are football kits, right? The way you look at them. I don't know if there is like a very definitive set of rules on what they can't do from a a form perspective. Like obviously from a a marketing standpoint, I'm sure there's limitations, but a few years ago during one of the I want to say African Nations Cup, which is kind of the big championship for football for the continent, Puma had these skin tight kits for I think Cameroon oh. and it it was definitely not it looked more like a sprinting suit than it did an actual football kit. So I guess that's my pushback and challenge. Like I, I think there's- That's a good pushback, yeah. but it, that's if you speak about that specific sport because my area of expertise is the NBA and they regulate their uniform pretty strictly, comparatively. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. not the point. Yeah. Please move but an, on. But anyways, what I'm trying to say is that esports has a lot more opportunity to just create something that straddles the line. Esports has the opportunity to create product and merchandise that essentially lives in the realm of fashion and streetwear whereas the other stuff needs to be contextualized into the realm of streetwear like a football jersey needs to be brought into that world versus Mm -hmm. esports can kind of start because whether it's a hoodie whether it's a t-shirt etc it already is immediately in that space right yeah i agree Um, and then we've seen a lot of both established brands that are coming from other spaces as well as new brands so for example adidas just signed a deal with ninja who's a streamer that's like a very interesting sort of big big time collaboration between two parties case swiss has been doing footwear uh nissan the car manufacturer partnered with phase clan and optic gaming to be very fair like i think that the actual parties involved are maybe less important in this capacity because it's more about the general state of where esports apparel is going and where it could should go in my opinion 
And I think the one thing that's interesting about this piece is that, like, you know, we've looked at, it also touches upon the democratic nature of gaming, which, you know, you and I, by virtue of having a smartphone, we could te- technically be gamers, right? We are g- technically gamers. Yeah. Whereas because both you and I play video games. Yeah, like, you basically just need, like, a console, a TV, and, like, a connection, and you're pretty much plugged in. I think that you're starting to see, based off the growth of esports, like how people from other industries are going to enter, kind of like Adidas, Nissan, K-Swiss. Like, I had a good friend of mine who left Reigning Champ to go to 100 Thieves. And that's a good example of like this migration of talent from the world of uh, streetwear into, mm-hmm. into gaming. And also, one of the people that was interviewed in the article for Hypebeast, Eric Marino. He previously was from the world of streetwear as well. But the thing is that I find most interesting is the element that people feel they want to tackle is this element of performance within apparel in esports. But I'm kind of questioning how much of a role apparel can actually play. Like to me, this is the the element that I think needs to be really sort of like stress tested. Um, so Maxwell Osborne of Public School, which is a New York-based brand, they did a collaboration with Anbox, and they said that the hoodies from our first Anbox collection have nylon patches on the back of the sleeves, decreased drag and friction when someone is moving a computer mouse across the table, and that features like these are essential to our community. I mean... I... Uh, <laughs> I mean... I, I think it's a stretch. I think it's a stretch, but I also think that, yeah, it's fine, but I don't think the the biggest actual performative benefits are actually going to be introduced through apparel, right? Yeah, exactly. It, it's definitely equipment. It's going to be equipment slash, like, I'm going to get into this later. There's another thing I want to talk about, but I, I don't think it's apparel. And I Oh and my I, gosh, I just looked at your notes. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know where you're going to go later, I see. Yeah. But look, but let's I, talk a little bit more about this. They're buckling down in functionality. Do you think it's because people coming from the apparel industry are still thinking about it like it's a sport and therefore we need to fulfill the sports function? Yes, I do. But I, part of me wonders also just in, in terms of what this is, like when you think of Nike, I think that we see any sort of fashion element and lifestyle element as secondary to a performance brand correct mm, so i think yeah. the general expectation is that if you're going to be a brand within the space then you should be doing it in a performative capacity well something that's interesting is that a lot so my own interest with video games tend to not be the games that are league based so i don't really watch or play Overwatch, Fortnite, League of Legends, which all have these, you know, big esport arenas sort of championships, but I do watch and play more like individual video games, right? And there are a lot of individuals such as Ninja, even though he plays Fortnite, um, who are streamers and they have really big fan bases. And actually a lot of them have merchandise, which yeah. is very which could become, you know, esports apparel. And they sell more merchandise that is related to their personalities and performances and you know somehow interlinked with who they are as people and i would see that that's a bigger opportunity and 
it's more individual case-by-case basis, but I think that's what people in the gaming community could get really excited about. Yeah. I mean, I would just think that for all these brands coming into the space, like maybe that's the immediate place where they think they can add value is that, hey, you guys are good at putting your branding on a t-shirt. Let us like elevate this with design. But I think the design might actually be a little bit overstated. Yeah, I mean, I think Ninja says this in the Hype Beast article that, yes, he says he hopes that as brands enter the space, they will do so with gamers instead of a weak attempt at targeting the community. And that is what I would, I would think that the successful brands who are trying to get into this space are the ones who really follow the lead of the gamers to say like, what is it that you actually want to wear that makes sense for you? And also like, what do you want to produce for your fan base that they would love? And that's like really the research that needs to happen. When I was going through this, the reason why I thought it was interesting was for that exact uh, dissection of the argument of performance within this space mm. and what would be the ultimate gamer brand in the space in terms of how do I put this like because you know the brand to me doesn't necessarily need to fall within a traditional sort of realm of oh it's like a clothing brand oh it's a footwear brand it's more of a performance brand and in terms it's like of, if Corsair started also producing clothing. Yeah, Corsair being the RAM company? Is that what you're no, saying? No, Corsair is a mouse and keyboard company. Okay, they do RAM too, so that's what I was like. Um, well, I have a Corsair keyboard. So. Nerd? Yes. Mechanical keyboard? Yeah, that Cherry MX keys. <laughs> anyway. But, <laughs> but no, I think that goes to what you're saying, right? Like Corsair already has the heart of gamers by producing yeah. technical equipment that they love and enjoy. I don't think that it's actually is a, a play step. though. I don't think that's a you play don't think though that's because, a play? because I think eventually everything's going to be standardized cuz like if I'm going to play you in the Street Fighter World Championships like I don't No, no, no. I meant that Corsair could then produce clothing. Oh. Mm, I mean that's yeah. what you were saying about it not having to be like a traditional apparel company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be like that. That yeah. No, I think that but I, I, my argument is that I don't think Corsair has the same impact and performance in the realm of like gaming at this level. Maybe it, maybe it may, actually I should walk that back because obviously you don't need to be an aspiring pro gamer for you to care about pro games. Same thing with sports, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. maybe that's the thing and is like, hey, I'm, I've just built this amazing rig with the best RAM and the best keyboard and I'm going to wear that apparel. And I, to me, that yes. that feels like a more relevant type of brand than uh, Adidas or Nike coming in offering a custom shoe for a streamer. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're getting to the point because you know we we talked about how gaming is so much more accessible, right? Like you or I could start streaming today, and that that's really why the esports community is different from the traditional sports community because. We can all be gamers and fans at home. And so I think the brand that is successful is that like sees that as the opportunity rather than like outfitting a team's kit on stage yeah. for a global championship. Yeah. Like I honestly think that the the brand that that has yet to really come into the space, as far as I know, is like a new tropics type brand that in 
improved cognitive performance. And I actually don't even really know that many cognitive performance brands out there with a brand name attached to it. And if you're not familiar, this would be like some something you take that improves your ability to think, like either you know retain memories, whether it's improve your creative capabilities, uh, awareness, etc. Like I think that actually ends up being a really interesting space to be in because I think it's also way more defensible versus like putting logos on t-shirts because it's so easy to fake that, right? Like if there's no performance element, like true performance element behind something. Well, it depends. If you're really trying to supply a performance element to gamers, then it's definitely not apparel. And I think you're right. Like nootropics could be it if we're if if companies are trying to make an argument for something enhancing a gamer's yeah. performance. I I don't really see that being the route to take. I see it more as like the serving gamers and fan base route, yeah. like the type of people who will buy you know an official. Steph Curry jersey because not because they play basketball but because they really love Steph Curry yeah. and so they're willing to drop like a hundred bucks on some kind of actually I have no idea how much jerseys cost something like that yeah I wonder if I'm losing a bit of the overall plot here in terms of thinking about apparel as in like creating apparel for this community versus building a brand in this community because those are different things because like ultimately the apparel people are seeking might just be purely on the base of identity versus other brands trying to create an actual place within this world and that place they're trying to create is built off of more than just aesthetics so i I, think i I need to be a little bit more clear about that do you mean clear in your articulation right now or do you just mean clear in your thinking like clear in my thinking and articulation Maybe less articulation, yeah. Experience with, like, my understanding of gaming and that community is that it is harder for a brand to make a space within it because it is very focused on individuals and maybe small teams of people together. And what has worked really well is, like, platforms that are supportive of those individuals So Twitch is really popular with people because they serve their community well. Like they try to make a lot of decisions that are fueled by what the gamers want and what those fan bases want. And so I still think that in the midterm, at least, if it was a company trying to produce products of some kind, it would have to be a brand that doesn't try to like distinguish itself as like an individual brand. Mm-hmm. So having like not having like a really strong brand identity like such as Nike, but having a brand identity that is more about like supporting the people in the community. Mm-hmm. That's my guess. Also, I think Twitch could do it. Like I yeah. think the platforms that provide streaming services, you know, Twitch, Epic Games, like we talked about this, or Mixer, right? Like they could become those product producing companies really easily. I do like the idea of redefining what brands do and represent like just redefining the structures like oh i'm an apparel brand like obviously you saw a lot of it where people coined the term like lifestyle brand and it could mean anything and nothing at the same time Mm -hmm. Uh, and i do want to see brands that are more 
driven by like psychographics, they're obviously a lot harder to build as a brand. When you say like, hey, we're a brand built built for performance, but it's not rooted in like we're a performance apparel brand, you soon open the doors to a lot more opportunity, but also you struggle for people to understand exactly what you do. Yeah, I don't know. I I I think it's really interesting in terms of this space. One thing I did I did want to mention uh was there was an article that came out in Kotaku mid-year or so and it talked about how there was a big ponzi scheme not like a very specific one but just by virtue of the amount of attention and investment going into esports was generally overhyped and they were under the pretense that despite all this excitement it wasn't materializing into viable business models just yet yeah i mean i don't know i i would say you know gaming is huge undeniably but I don't have information on how much money potentially people can make out of that. Like, I think that I actually also scanned the same article. That's kind of where the bubble is. Like, Mm -hmm. with all these companies fighting for a space, there is really no guarantee that they're all about to, like, turn huge profits. There is one aside that's not totally relevant, but I wanted to mention anyway because I thought it was really cool. So there's a really hype game coming out later in November called Death Stranding. And it's being made by Hideo Kojima. And Hideo Kojima is like a really big fan of like different types of people and creators. And so he has acronym apparel inside the game. Yep. I think that's the one I you shared, was right? Just like, yeah, I shared it in the Slack already. But I just yeah. thought it was so cool. It's like, because he's a fan of Errolson, or like they're like mutually fans of each other. And so they collaborated on doing a shirt for in game. That's the acronym. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, that that's a super easy... Su- it's a different subject because it's not about, like, gamers and kits necessarily. It's just, like, this transition from things in-game to becoming, like, sellable products. What role does gender play in this space going forward for gaming apparel? Do you think there needs to be a very deliberate focus on just, like, identifying where I'm going to go? Or do you think that there's this confluence of things happening all at once that the the neutrality of the brand actually can be right down the middle. I think neutrality is the way to go because, you know, in line with what we said about performance not being a big deal, you don't have to tailor to a male or a female body specifically in terms of like enhancing some kind of physical function. And I think that's an opportunity to just not make a distinction. That's what I would hope for, at least. Like, I don't see a need for it. And I think the space is new enough that there aren't these, um, that you don't have to work around existing traditional concepts of what, like, a gendered uniform might look like or, like, the apparel for the sport should be for a different gender. Versus like sports that have been around for a long time have like this legacy. Actually, while I was doing research for this, one of the um, teams that you mentioned, Phase Up, recently signed their first female player. And she's under 13 or she's 13 years old and she's deaf. Oh, crazy. Cool. That's kind of the nice democratic element behind esports. Yeah, I think that's awesome. So you can have like Ninja play against this 13-year-old deaf girl, and it's like an even playing field. 
Do you see graduating as a big accomplishment? No. I'm almost I'm almost embarrassed by how many degrees I hold. Jeez. Listen to yourself. Um I do. I hear myself. I but that is like the honest truth. Like I'm comfortable saying that to you and even though other people will hear this, they're not here in front of me, so I don't have to like talk about it in person. But even before I started this program, I already like had doubts about, you know, the value of getting a degree in the first place. And yet here I am getting another degree. I mean, really, you were just getting a degree so you could go on to teach, right? Yes. It's a formality. Yes, which is still annoying that that's like a requirement. Do I see graduating as a big accomplishment? I don't want to undersell it, though, because for some people, it is a big accomplishment. Right. So like for some people, I know it's really significant. I especially maybe if you came from a family where you're like the first uh, master's degree holder, like I do think that's a significant accomplishment. And like you know, other people probably had to go through more trials to get to this point than myself. Um, but for me personally, it's not a big deal. Yeah. I don't need cake. It's fine. I don't know what I want to say for revelations today. Do you want to mm. go first? Um, in terms of revelations, weekly revelations. Let me have a think about that. It's funny because we know it's coming, but we don't really prepare ourselves, do we? I thought about it 10 minutes before you called. So, <laughs> uh, uh, I'll just tell me something that happened to you. Oh, you know what? You, you know the one thing that my revelation was? I really think that knowing your surroundings is so important towards and i hate to like relate it back to work but just knowing your surroundings and what creates the best work is really important because i think there are certain things that i think about a lot on an intangible level in terms of like psychologically what do i need to do the best work and sometimes it's just really about getting a good night's rest or a good night's sleep but then lately i've been thinking how much am i impacted by the fact i don't have a desk Sometimes, like at home, I don't have a desk, right? And recently, there's like this little area downstairs in my apartment, like almost like a common area where people can go and they can sit at a table. And it's actually been super helpful in terms of just repositioning and contextualizing what I'm doing at that given moment in time because yeah. I'm not at home on the couch, even though I'm literally just like an elevator ride away. Yeah. No, I actually, that's almost, I, that's one thing I thought about this week to talk about with you, because I think one of the reasons why I'm more stressed this week is because I've been going into school throughout summer and I've been using that studio space and it's been working out well for me. But it's because we're starting term now, suddenly all of my cohort is also coming in versus during the summer when there was only like 10 to 12 people. Now it's, yeah. you know, 70 to 80. And that's part of the problem for me which is that all of these other people are giving off their stressed busy energies and that that's mm. been affecting my ability to be productive do you think that we do far too many things in pursuit of just greater productivity like do we revolve too many of our life decisions around work mm. maybe that's dependent on each person but just in general 
Well, but like what I'm doing right now isn't even work in the sense of like work that earns me money. My work right now is being a student and that's my full-time gig. Well, but if you call that work, then yeah, I do make a lot of decisions based around how I can best do that. Is, yeah. Is it too many? I uh, mean, what would the opposite be if we just picked decisions that made us, I guess, feel better on a personal level? I can't imagine what that is, though. Yeah, it's something that's actually kind of fascinating because it's probably an indication of how much time and effort we pour into just work in general, right? Yeah, I mean, I take breaks. I'm not like 24-7 working. I, I, I also watch TV shows and eat meals without doing work. Eat meals, hey? Got it. Well, like, I mean, I'm not just always in front of my computer doing stuff. Um, so I don't know. I mean, we've talked about this before and like my perspective on it is that like, I don't subscribe by traditional work-life balance in terms of like you need to shut shut off yourself from work at a certain hour and then move into like the life portion of your life. I just think of the work as like a holistic part of my life. Yeah. The other thing that I was gonna tell you, not because I want to like make an announcement, but in case you tag me on Twitter, I had Stanley change my password to keep me from logging in so that I stop wasting time on Twitter. Interesting. I just have you no self-discipline. I just do not have self-discipline. Why would you just delete the app? See, the thing is that I don't even use the Twitter app on my phone because that was my initial measure to like stop myself from spending so much time on Twitter. So I actually mm -hmm. use the Safari browser. I use the browser on my phone to go on Twitter. And it's just like any measure I was coming up with wasn't enough because I would just would find myself defaulting to like looking at Twitter. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I go on whenever I feel like it, but the the one that's hardest for me to actually be mindful of my time is probably Reddit. Uh, maybe I should get into Reddit. That'll be my replacement uh, drug. Dude, Reddit Reddit is way better than <laughs> no, Twitter. No, no, no. The point is that I want to... The point is that this is actually also in service of my last term, back to that, like, feeding into productivity thing. I just don't... I think I'm wasting too much time on it when I could be either doing the schoolwork I should be doing or, like, doing something productively restful in service of the schoolwork. So I'm, I'm trying to be off until I graduate. Do you ever spend a lot of time on YouTube? No. YouTube has become my go-to when it's, you know, 10 p.m. at night, and I know there's nothing interesting on Netflix. What are you watching on and YouTube? I just, I just, I honestly, that's the one place where I let the algorithm take over. I'm in shock. But I just like to see, because a lot of people have suggested that the quality of the algorithm on YouTube is really good, but huh. it's not very good. Well, okay, there's two things I watch. It's predictable. I'd, Hold on, I'd, the I'd, algorithm is predictable. What does it serve you? Like pop music? No, it serves me like some very clear things. It's almost as though like, oh, you watched more than one video on this in a certain period of time, so let's serve you 15 of these videos. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's very subject-based in my yeah. experience, but I also don't rely on it. There are two things I watch on YouTube. Not that anyone is interested in this conversation. I watch Bon Appetit. Okay. Yeah. You know, like Gourmet Makes. where. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I watch that. And I watch What I Lie to You, which is a British panel TV show. It's actually, I think it's really funny, but I don't know. I don't know how British people actually feel about it. So they could all be laughing at me at this moment. I think that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about making, reading, and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makin.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at charisse at macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Charisse. Oops. I mean, <laughs> I'm Eugene. I'm Let me Sh- say that one down. <laughs> I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is making it up. Three for a little curveball there, didn't I? Yeah, I was like, wait, what? <laughs>